This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Very good to see all of you whom I can see. I, um, I just, um, I've been wanting to give a talk on uh, this topic that I've chosen um, for some time. It's been, I think we've, we've kind of talked about it for a, a, a while. And, um, but I wanted to devote a, a, a full talk which barely scrapes the surface of the topic, uh, of course. And the topic is, um, is the topic of anger. How many of you have been feeling anger? <laughs> so I'm not alone. <laughs> yeah. And how many of you feel like the anger is, um, how many of you have spent some time like really getting to know the feeling of anger? Like deliberately, deliberately turning towards the anger and making space for it and investigating it. And um, maybe even uh, taking a look at what's underneath that anger. Yeah. So um, anger in, in Buddhism, as many of you know, is, one, is considered one of the three poisons, right? the three fundamental poisons um, that take us away from our true nature as our true Buddha nature and, uh, and kind of enmesh us in selfish, egocentric, ignorant views of reality, that we are separate that we are uh, uh, um, not dependently co-arising with the entire universe, right? Anger is sometimes, um, it's sometimes translated as it's uh, doha in the three poisons, the, uh, the Pali is doha. And it translates as sometimes as anger, as hatred, as aggression, as rage, right? As a very strong, um, a strong aversion, right? Now, how many of you think that anger has its place? Yeah, okay. So, so obviously there's something nuanced about the anger that is considered one of the poisons, right? So what makes anger uh, a poison? What what is what could be uh, what could we be talking about when we talk about positive anger or maybe even beneficial anger? Is there such a thing as beneficial anger? Right. And what's the difference? And how do we know? How do we discern the difference between those? Um, so I'm going to start by saying uh, uh, giving a few stories or um, early Buddhist. Uh, under the early Buddhist understanding of anger as a poison. So when in early Buddhism, there's a, one of the Jataka stories, these are stories of the Buddha prior to, um, prior to this eon, the Buddha in other forms in previous lifetimes, uh, before the Buddha became the Buddha in this age. And one of these Jataka tales, number 21, is the tale of Kudabodhi. And Kudabodhi was a, uh, um, born as a no, in, into nobility as a Brahmin and spent his life studying. And he became very uh, learned. And in particular, he studied the Dharma. During his life, he, became, he, uh, he married a very beautiful woman, a, the story that I looked up did not give her name, sadly, but she plays a big part in the story. As he was uh, studying the Dharma more and more, eventually he grew to uh, become familiar with the concept of renunciation. And um, 
he, he himself deci- discovered that his householder life no longer was, was no longer doing it for him. Uh, he wanted to go deeper into his practice and became very disturbed with um, the kind of attachments that are inherent in householder life. So he decided he wanted to take up the life as an ascetic. So he took his home departure. Now his wife also wanted to become an ascetic. And he tried to dissuade her, as you do when you're living in these times, those times, um, by, by letting her know that it was too dangerous for a woman, um, you know, that there were, there were bandits and uh, so forth. So he tried to dissuade her, but she was not to be dissuaded. And so she um, also shaved her head, took up the robe and bowl, and went into the forest with her husband, Kuda Bodhi. Now, they were uh, practicing together and um, were living a life of asceticism, serene, peaceful, living uh, amongst nature. And um, at that time, a king happened to be coming through the forest, traveling through the forest. And he, uh, he, saw, he saw them sitting there and went closer to, make, to pay his respects to Kudabodi, the, the, the monk at this point. After paying his respects and giving the customary greetings to Kuta Bodhi, he noticed Kuta Bodhi's wife, who at this point had shaved her head and was wearing no adornments and was wearing simple robes in the forest, which amazingly just made her more beautiful, especially more beautiful, it says, with the, uh, the glow of meditative absorption, as you can imagine. <laughs> and the, the king became enamored. Uh, in fact, he, he became overcome with lust for Kudabodi's wife. And he decided, he, he, he hatched a plan to kidnap her and take her home to his palace. However, he had also heard that, um, <laughs> that there's a terrible wrath that would, become, would, would befall him were he to uh, you know, do such a thing um, by just just the wrath that comes from wronging an ascetic, so he was afraid of being cursed. So he decided to test Kudabodhi's um, understanding of the Dharma and uh, his powers, his spiritual powers. So by doing this, he asked Kudabodhi, "What would Kudabodhi do if somebody kidnapped his wife?" And Kudabodhi, the uh, the prior Buddha replied that if, if that had happened, he would never let his enemy escape. So the king, uh, of course, took this to mean that Kudabodhi was still attached, right? How could he have spiritual powers as an ascetic if he were still attached to his beloved wife, right? So he decided, well, Kudabodhi obviously doesn't have very much spiritual power as an ascetic, so I'm going to go ahead and kidnap uh, his wife, which he did. As Kudabodhi watched the king and his guards take his wife away, who was uh, protesting greatly, Kudabodhi seemed, he appeared uh, oblivious to her cries. And this, this uh, uh, struck the king, like what, what's going on, right? Surely, you know, you said that you were, you, you would never let your enemy escape. So, What's going on? So he, he kind of taunted Kudabodhi and said, well, look what I'm doing. Like, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> um, and what was Kudabodhi's response? He replied that the enemy that he was referring to was not the king nor his guards. But the enemy he was referring to was the enemy of anger. And of course, as these stories go, because Kudabodhi was now displaying his powers as an ascetic, the king realized that he was mistaken about Kudabodhi and immediately retracted. He uh, became his disciple, he apologized, he returned his wife, and then uh, basically vowed to be in service of the Dharma from that point on. So, nice, nice story. Yeah. 
In the Visuddhi Magga, The Path of Purification, Buddha Gosha, the author of that text, uh, says of anger, by getting angry, you are like one who wants to hit another and picks up a burning coal or a piece of shit. And in your hand, like pick something like this up and in so doing, uh, the first, you first burn yourself or you make yourself stink. That's, uh, that's what happens when we give in to our anger. Shantideva, in his chapters on, he has two chapters that he devotes to the topic of anger and to the paramita, the perfection, uh, or the antidote to anger, or which is patience or forbearance. Shantideva's uh, first line of, um, of in his Bodhicharya Vatara, the chapter on patience says, whatever wholesome deeds, such as venerating Buddhas, practicing generosity, whatever these wholesome deeds that have amassed over a thousand eons will all be destroyed in one instant flash of anger. So I think we, we all know the destructive capacity of anger, right? Um, oftentimes our uh, initial response to anger is, you know, there's, it's almost seems like we have, you know, uh, one of two things that we we can do with anger when anger arises, right? One response is to um, give into it, to express it, to allow it, or maybe we maybe we don't think we have a choice. Um, we allow it to completely fill us, to overtake us, actually, and. I think all of us have the experience of being overtake, overtaken by our anger. So one, one possibility we can um, give into it. We can even um, become enraptured by it and fuel it even more. Right. And when we do that, there might be, um, you know, this giving into it and maybe allowing it to bubble up and to, to vent right? To vent, that's one of the, one of the descriptions of it is to vent, right? This, this bubbling up, maybe hot or cold uh, flames of anger that we may give into it. And that's one way to deal with anger. Yeah. Another uh, popular thing to do with our anger is to stuff it, right? Suppress it, right? especially if we have some idea that we are good Buddhists. <laughs> and uh, Earthland Manuel, recently in a Bodhi, uh, Buddha Dharma magazine, there was an article called Awakened by, I think it's called Awakening, Awakened by Rage, Fueled by Rage. Anyway, in her, in her uh, short piece in, in Buddha Dharma magazine, she talked about... Uh, uh, this this the heat of the energy of of anger and we'll get to we'll get to her uh, I want to quote from her in a little bit. What does it do when we suppress it? What does it do when we give into it? Are these the only two options that we have? Obviously not. But what what is our practice and how how do we um, how do we take care of the present moment in the face of strong aversion, anger, no matter what, no matter what kind of anger. And of course, in Shantideva's Bodhicharya Vatara, he talks about the different kinds of anger, but mostly it's, he's talking just about anger itself, right? The emotion of anger, the feeling of anger and how we do or do not act uh, from it. Right. So one of the main things that we, um, when practicing with anger in these early teachings, one of the first things to do that's recommended is to understand its power as a poison. Right? What is the poisonous aspect of anger? And if we don't see it as a poison, if we give into it and even um, throw flames, uh, sorry, throw fuel onto the flames of anger, 
what happens to us and to other beings. The Dalai Lama, when talking about anger, he says that anger brings about a very ugly, unpleasant physical transformation of the individual. It makes the best part of our brain, which is the ability to discern right from wrong, to assess long and short-term consequences of our actions. It renders that best part of our brain totally inoperable. It can no longer function. So if this is true, then it behooves us to give anger when it arises uh, a lot of our respect and care in terms of how we're going to tread around it or through it or with it how we develop a relationship to it or what deciding discerning what our relationship is to the anger that arises right if we pause and look at the emotion of anger or the feeling of anger as it's arising what does that mean to look at it to investigate it to give it space for starters we can feel it, right? How do you know when you're angry? How can you tell if you're angry? If anger is bubbling within you, how do you know? What gives you a clue that you're feeling anger? Firstly, you feel it in your body, right? Just like actually everything, how you know you're having an emotion. It has its physical uh, component, which is, uh, arises in your body. So if we feel it, right, that's the moment when we first feel our anger, we can turn, we have a choice to turn towards it. I would say that sometimes it happens so quickly that we don't have a choice, that it feels like we don't have a choice, right? Um, that's why it's such a powerful, um, powerful emotion that can completely derail us, right? And as um, Shanti Deva says, one instant of acting on our anger can destroy eons of good deeds. And how many of us have had that happen in our lives where we say something in, uh, in, amidst, in amidst anger and ruin a friendship or at least set back a relationship deeply, right? So powerful stuff now, uh, what happens when we suppress it? Do we notice it in the body when we suppress it? What happens physically when we um, repress or suppress our anger? Where does it go? For myself, I notice when I don't, um, with the discomfort of anger, if I'm suppressing, it's hard to notice that I'm suppressing it, right? Because I'm, I'm hiding it from myself deliberately because I don't want to feel it. However, you know, you squeeze it down a little bit and what happens? It, it pops up over here, right? Or it pops up over there. We notice it if we're paying attention. So when we sublimate our anger in this way, um, it comes back and it bites us and other people, often without our even knowing it at the time. And only later do we, um, do we see the, the impact, the consequence of such anger. So recognizing the destructive power of anger could be a start, is a starting place, right? and then developing a relationship to it. In particular, recognizing it in our bodies allows us to, um, to have something to start working with. So in reframing, we can start to reframe a relationship to it by noticing where it arises in our body. So for myself, I know that oftentimes if I'm feeling gripped by anger, 
Um, well, I feel it all kinds of places in my body, but sometimes um, if it's continued or persisting, then it lodges itself somewhere in my solar plexus, in my stomach. That's where I kind of carry tension. So when looking inward, we might find areas that we feel tension or heat, right? It could be a, I mean, depending on the kind of anger, there are many different kinds of anger, right? It could have a hot quality and could be felt, like literally felt in your face, right? In your hands even, right? To feel anger as it's welling up, to pause and notice where do I feel it? How do I know that this is what I'm feeling, that anger is what's arising within me? Right? To ask that question um, is, a, is a good starting place. However, it can be very tricky too. Right? So rather than just noticing where it is in the body, we can also ask ourselves, what is my relationship to this feeling right now. So turning our uh, awareness to our bodies to find where this energy is manifesting, right? Now developing a relationship to it. How do I feel towards this experience that I'm having? What is my relationship to this energy? Now, in fleshing out what it feels like, it can help to, um, to ask questions like, um, what does, it, does this feeling have a, uh, you know, what are the qualities of the feeling as they are uh, manifesting in my body, in my physicality? Is the feeling one of um, hot, cold? Is it, does it have a quality of being spiky? pointy, stabby, or is it dull, throbbing, right? What's the point of doing this? What's the point of trying to uh, ascertain the qualities of the feeling itself? Yes, Shu, I think you're waving at me. To learn how to recognize them, to, to be able to be familiar with your own experience. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah, to learn how to recognize. Bruce? Well, I would say that it's attending to the experience, paying attention to it without buying into or getting caught up in the story of it. So you're not suppressing it, and yet you're noticing it. You're, 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 you're there with it, but you're not being spun off necessarily by your story or judgment about it. So neither, neither suppressing nor like, like riding that train. <laughs> Yes, right. So this is, uh, this is... So it disrupts, kind of. Yeah. yeah, it's another option besides the two that I mentioned. The, the two that we, we can oftentimes just go to, expressing it or suppressing it, right? Yeah. So it gives us this other option. Tim. Um, just maybe another aspect of what Bruce is mentioning, but I think it, it brings us into the immediate moment too. So our mind can kind of project into the future or the past or the story of what happened, but our body is only feeling what it's feeling right now. And so that kind of grounds us back in that moment. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so when, just to, let me pause and say something about, about that. One of the things about anger that I've noticed is if it's uncared for, if it's not tended to in this way of giving it space, of, dis of investigating what its source is or what's underneath it or what the present experience is of it, what happens to that anger? Prolonged feeling of anger, which you can think of as um, you know, what's the problem with anger? What, why, why do we not like it? <laughs> why do we want to push it away? Or, uh, or even if we don't want to push it away, if we want to uh, kind of roll around in it and get really into it, what's the point of doing either of those things? Right? The point of doing either of those things is to get rid of it, whether it's through expressing it, right? That is, a, you know, when we vent, we think that in venting, we're going to get rid of it somehow. 
like, ah, I feel so much better. And maybe uh, in a temporary uh, manner, it does get rid of it for a while, right? We feel like, ah, now I've vented, I've let it all go. Except not really, it doesn't really go away when we vent. It might go away for a little while. And then when we suppress it as well, it doesn't go away. It, it actually just kind of lodges with the suppression of anger. What can also happen is that it takes us out of the present moment and we can fall into either depression with prolonged feeling of anger. We have depression looking backwards, right? Depression is about looking backwards or anxiety, which is about looking forward, right? Into the future, right? So the depression can be felt as a, a, you know, a powerlessness, a deep hopelessness to the situation. Like, ah, I can't deal with this feeling. Hopelessness comes, right? But then maybe we get some energy and we feel like, oh, maybe I can work with this. But what does that, that, that sometimes might look like I need to do something. How do I do something to respond to this feeling of anger that's caused by, and then we go to the reasons for anger, right? Which further brings us out of our body. I'm not saying that this is not something that we investigate. It's just the question of like, what, how do we unpack what's happening to us in our psychophysical manifestation when experiencing anger for whatever reason? Right. So if we don't attend to it, then it's very easy to fall into this polarity of feeling hopeless on the one hand. And then when not feeling hopeless, but we feel like we need to do something, getting into like, well, what can I do? How can I how can I do something with it? And then rising energy of anxiety. Right. So another trap that happens when we don't meet our anger with uh, with skillfulness. Pat, did you have something? I saw your you waving. I had my hand up a while back. Sorry. Um, I guess I have been thinking of something as you've been talking about this. It sort of happened to me recently. Uh, the word vent around venting. Um, I don't want to get off the subject, I guess, but um, it seems to me there is kind of a way of carefully venting you know, watching what you're doing. And because I know I did this, I had an obsessive judgment against a friend of mine for a long time. And I finally told her about it. Now, I didn't do it in an accusatory, angry manner. I sort of blamed myself for having this judgment. And I noticed that after I did that, I, I really got to know it a lot better. I mean, getting it out in the open. In the meantime, though, I did hurt her feelings. And so we had a long talk. And it kind of turned out, I think, okay. So, I don't know. <laughs> that was my current thought. That's not why I had my hand up, but. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, well, th yeah. So, like, what is the, what is venting versus, um, like, if you took venting and the energy and the impulse of venting and you applied Buddha's wisdom <laughs> to that venting, what would it look like? Right. How would it be to be uh, to be able to approach this upwelling of emotion and feeling and the strength, right? And even the veracity of it, right? It could be very true. Like anger can cut through delusion in a sense, right? This is, can you think of, when you think of Manjushri's sword, cutting through delusion, there's a clarity of discernment that may be the root of feeling this upwelling of anger. Mary, did you, uh, you had your hand up. One of the attractive things about the practice, one of the many, is the notion of skillful means. So, uh, the practice teaches us that once we recognize something that there can be not just a, 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 a simplistic approach to it, like for anger, 
not just suppress it, not just a lot, you know, um, express it or look at different ways. This, this notion of skillful means, how can I use the practice to skillfully assess what is the cause of this and what is that thing that's called an appropriate response. It's kind of like, it's sort of like one of the reasons um, that, um, that I practice anyway. That's what I have to say. I'm that skillful response. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. So when, uh, when experiencing strong feelings, and this is true of all difficult emotions, not just anger. Uh, I'm choosing anger because it's so easy to be angry these days. Um, but, but when we have the ability to pause and look at, you know, to even entertain the question, Mary, what is an appropriate response? How do I uh, meet this skillfully? What does it look like to be skillful with it? That is, um, that is huge. That's a huge step from immediately just responding from the impulse to the behavior. If there's no gap in between that, right, then there's no chance for skillful response. Billion. I see you have your hand up. I've been thinking about this lately as well. It's very interesting uh, to hear what you have to share with us. Um, and for me personally, I, I, I found that anger is very often connected with uh, some form of pain that we have felt. And it, it's starting with a pain. And then there is a reactionary moment where you have to express that pain in some way and it turns into an anger um and uh i I see that in people in many people that i've seen being angry they've been either some they've been abused in a way or hurt in a way but they very very rarely you're going to see someone who's happy or content become angry uh, very rarely. I, I I don't know if I if I can think of uh, somebody. Um, and I feel like when you when you're in pain, uh, or and when you felt when you feel hurt in some way or abused, um, it's extremely difficult to actually step back and and analyze or 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 work on some skills <laughs> because it's just so emotional. <laughs> Um, yeah, I just wanted to share that because I feel like it, it all starts with pain. Thank you. Yes, I think it does. The, um, I think many of you may know the story of Avalokiteshvara. So Avalokiteshvara being the Bodhisattva of compassion, um, has a thousand arms and hands and an eye in each of the hands, and each of the hands has an implement for uh, alleviating or relieving the suffering of the world, of the cries of the world. Avalokiteshvara also, uh, it is said, happens to have 11 heads. How did he get these heads? <laughs> uh, the story goes that Avalokiteshvara's head, uh, his, the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, when, when sent into the hells in response to seeing so much suffering, right? This is getting to the pain billion that you're talking about in response to seeing all this suffering, his head exploded. How many of you have ever had your head explode? Yes. <laughs> right. So what happens when your head explodes? <laughs> well, in Avalokiteshvara's case, he was very fortunate because, <laughs> Because he happened to have Amitabha, Buddha. And Amitabha happened to put his head back together. And in so doing, gave him 11 heads, 10 of his own and one 
with Amitabha himself. And so Avalokiteshvara, if you see these images of Avalokiteshvara, he has, you know, these 10 heads, this little head on top. And these heads are all there for what reason? Why does he, I mean, we know why he needs so many hands and eyes, but what about these heads? In response to great pain and suffering, right? It was too much. It was overwhelming, which is why his head exploded in the first place. And through, uh, through his vow and the vow of uh, being uh, committed to living for the benefit of alleviating the suffering of the world, that's how he grew these other heads, right? So oftentimes we think of our own head exploding as, a, as an overwhelm of being completely verklempt, right? We don't know what to do with our anger. We don't know what to, how to, it's too much for us to feel. It's overwhelming. In Shantideva's process the, in the Bodhicharya Vatara, when talking about the antidote to anger, that being uh, um, sometimes it's kashanti, sometimes translated as patience, also translated as forbearance, the ability to bear discomfort, right? Now, sometimes people read that and think that um, what this means is that anger is an emotion that one ought not feel, right? And, and there's some, some ways, uh, sometimes when, when looking at the, the 10 grave precepts, uh, the precept on anger is translated as thou shalt not, or a disciple of Buddha shall not become angry. Right? And there's a lot of debate around this. It's very interesting, right? Is it the Bodhisattva way to not ever feel anger? Is that possible to not feel anger? What do, you know, when we think about that, what does it mean to not ever feel anger? In some ways, respond appropriately, right? Getting back to this skillful response. If we're unable to feel the suffering of the world, it's kind of like denial, right? If we're met with great suffering and we don't feel something about it, like just the feeling of, no, <laughs> this is not okay. This, and, and this, is a, this is a particular kind of anger, right? Now, you can imagine getting angry at something that is, um, you know, that involves your own, your own small self, right? Your ego, an ego attachment that causes anger. Just like, you know, the general samsaric uh, position of not getting what you want, right? There's ways in which, you know, we can get very angry at not getting what one wants, right? Or somebody takes our toy away, right? And we get angry. Anger has a way of masquerading as our self, right? How, this is how strong uh, anger can be, right? It can be, it comes up oftentimes in the form of defensiveness when our self is threatened, when our, our small self is threatened. However, when anger arises on behalf of the well-being of, uh, of others or our own well-being for that matter, when it arises as a, um, uh, out of a, a sense of wanting for there to be well-being and ease and justice in the world, right? So anger that arises on behalf of other sentient beings is very different from anger that arises based on my small ego self. Now, the feeling of anger may have the same qualities of, uh, you know, heat and uh, heat or cold or um, spikiness or uh, throbbiness or what have you. And in so how we practice with anger can be the same, right? When we do take the step and look at our present experience, okay, anger is arising once we notice it and we take care of it, it's not to dispel the thing that is um, 
necessarily, it's not to dispel what is underneath it, right? It's to get very close to an understanding of what is the cause. What is the, um, the impetus that gives rise to anger? If it is on behalf of beings, then our head exploding makes complete sense in a sense, right? And it's something that we actually, um, it's an invitation to learn how to become skillful. However, when we notice that the anger is, um, isn't really about the benefit of beings, right? It may be about uh, our small self. In early teachings of Buddhism, there's a lot of kind of uh, the language of just, you know, like in the, in the um, Kuta Bodhi story, there's language around how do we destroy our anger? The anger itself is the enemy, right? However, it's, um, I think when we go down the route of destroying the, the anger itself um, without mm, developing an understanding for it, then they're, they're, uh, we can do damage to ourselves and others. By re- it's it's a, a way of repressing or suppressing the feeling. So in Shanti Deva's process, though, the first thing that he kind of orients the uh, practitioner to is how to not just how to understand what it is, where it is, but to see the, the poisonous nature of it, to see how if allowed to um, fester and take hold, that it has this destructive, uh, destructive power to it. And so the first, one of the first things to do with it is to, um, that he recommends is uh, the practice of um, increasing our tolerance of small uh, instances of hardship or pain. How do we develop a capacity for being with what's arising? Now, this may not be, um, you know, when thinking about something, uh, the anger that arises at injustice, it can sound like what you're doing with uh, developing tolerance is um, becoming, having some kind of a Pollyanna approach or just uh, denying it, denying the, um, the harmfulness of what is the root of why we're becoming angry, right? The injustice, for example, that we are uh, responding to. However, if we can't take it, right, we become completely overwhelmed, as the Dalai Lama points out, it can hijack our frontal lobe, our capacity to reason, our capacity to uh, weigh pros and cons, our, our own, the capacity even to um, discern an appropriate response becomes hijacked, can become hijacked, if we don't have the ability to stay with it to investigate it, right? So in this way, Shantideva talks about in his chapters, he, uh, interestingly, of the six paramitas that he uh, gives commentary on in the Bodhicharya Vatara, anger is the only one, patience, the antidote of, of anger, is the only paramita that he spends two chapters, two full chapters on. Everything else gets one chapter. That's how important it is to, to him. So in, this, in his uh, practice, it involves developing uh, tolerance to the feeling or the emotion that we want to actually get away from, right? Developing a tolerance to the feeling itself, not to what caused it necessarily, but then reframing our relationship to it. So in the midst of that, that may be to uh, pull back from the external features, right? To take care of what's what we're being flooded with, if we're being flooded. Because if we, as we know, if we repress it, that feeling, or we deny the feeling, that only, uh, that only compounds our um, being stoked by it. It compounds the misery that's caused by it. So rather than that, with this reframing, how do we use 
this attending to the emotion, the feeling in the body, how do we use that as a gateway to uh, greater empathy or compassion to our circumstances? Another part of the process of working with anger that he talks about is to understand, and um, somebody brought this up earlier, to broaden our own, uh, the, the narrowness of our view, which often happens when we are gripped by anger, right? We, we fall into black or white thinking. We fall into a uh, strong duality. So when we can understand the complexity of what we're becoming angry at, um, it'll, it can add to a, a greater perspective and a softening of our reactivity, right? Not to say that we don't notice and pay attention to the reactions that come up, that bubble forth, right? But when we notice our reactivity, we have the opportunity to work with it. So reactivity can, again, we, we notice the activity, the reactivity, in our bodies, right? And in our minds too, right? We can experience it maybe as a tightening or as a contraction, right? A holding, maybe we stop breathing. Um, that may be an indication that we are uh, ignoring some larger perspective, a greater, uh, the greater complexity, right? Oftentimes when threatened, we go into this very constricted mode of thinking and we can hold the, the other, the thing that we're getting uh, enraged at uh, as a singularity or as an abstraction um, that is singularly responsible for our anger. And when we generate um, the ability to stay with it, that is in effect developing a, a certain kind of patience and then in the process, we find compassion. And I would say that, you know, Chantideva talks mostly about finding compassion for the source of our anger, but I would say also finding compassion for the, ourselves in feeling the anger that we're feeling, right? It's very unpleasant. We all know this, how unpleasant it is to feel uh, gripped by and even hijacked by anger. So getting back to this feeling of um, how do we practice or how do we meditate with anger? How do we investigate it, right? Starting with um, our disposition towards it, right? So if we, we feel gripped by anger and we are um, hijacked, at that point, there's may, there may not be very much we can do, right? Um, but there's always a starting place, right? We always start exactly where we are. So having that moment of recognition of, oh, I'm gripped, I'm hijacked, what do we use? We use our breath, we use our attentiveness, our mindfulness, right? Awareness of what's happening in our body, not what's happening externally. That won't necessarily help us um, in this, uh, in this short term, in the immediacy of it. So again, opening ourselves to the qualities that we experience in the body and the mind, we can use our breath, right. To generate a, uh, a little bit of space around it. Again, this is not letting it off the hook, right? This is turning towards and engaging. It's not passive. Patience, I would say, as uh, described by Shantideva, is not a passive kind of like, oh, well, that's just how things are. It's, it's not, um, it's a very active process, right? You might ask yourself when sending breath, right? Sending your breath and sending your awareness by becoming very still, by taking a seat, right, of uprightness, by turning towards what's happening, 
ideally with a sense, um, a certain measure of curiosity. And uh, if you can muster it, uh, a measure of kindness. Already, if you can bring in curiosity and kindness towards the feelings that are being expressed, imagine what that does. Like you're cooking something up and it's like bubbling up and it's, you know, as an analogy of like cooking food and you're, you know, putting these different ingredients in it and you're, you know, more pepper, <laughs> more garlic, more spices. Now, what if you added just a little bit of kindness towards yourself, a little bit of curiosity into the mix? Does it make the anger or what the, or the concern that is the, the, the cause of the anger, does it make it go away? Not at all. Actually, being able to take this step back to hold the anger and the, all the associated feelings and maybe memories, um, impulses, to be able to breathe some space into it, I would suggest you might even, in sitting zazen, when experiencing something, where, uh, uh, and it goes for more than just anger, but any emotion, to be able to bring it out of your body, and uh, we have a very handy place, to put it, the mudra. Imagine bringing out this, this tightness, this constriction, this hot or cold ball that we don't know what to do with. It's sticky, it's a hot mess, right? We bring it through our breath, or maybe if you're a visual person, you can imagine getting to know it visually. What does it seem to look like when you turn your eye inward, right? And how do we bring it out so that it has a little bit of space, right? And having it come out into our mudra right there so it's close. We're not, you know, we're not throwing it across the, 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 the room. We're bringing it out actually so we can see it better, right? So that we have some opportunity to actually be able to meet it. And then we might ask this question, which I mentioned before, how do I feel towards it? Just bringing that question opens up a whole world of practice. How do I feel towards this thing that I'm calling anger or I'm calling rage or I'm calling it hatred? It feels like such a version. How do I feel towards it? And then when you get an answer back to that question, which you can only get an answer back if you're paying attention and if you give it space, right? You'll get an answer back, right? It could be anything. It could be, I hate it, I want it to go away, right? I'm overwhelmed by it, I'm scared, right? You keep asking this question, okay, well, how do, how do I feel towards it? And validate the feelings when they come, acknowledge them. Right? Even if they're unpleasant, to be able to say, ah, that's something I'm feeling. That in and of itself is, uh, I think, is a great act of courage right? to be able to ask how you feel towards it and to acknowledge it. And what we find oftentimes with anger or with hatred, right? Oftentimes when we look underneath and we peek underneath the, uh, that strong feeling, what do we find? We find fear. Find fear of loss. It may be that our anger comes out, that underneath it, what comes out is actually love, right? a strong wish for justice, a wish for the well-being of those who are not well or who are subject to violence or oppression, right? So underneath this anger, it's not like, I'm not talking about getting rid of the anger, but allowing through the practice of opening our heart to what we're experiencing, that we might find, that we will find, 
that underneath it, there's something really fundamental. It could be our fear of dying. It could be our fear of injustice. And what's underneath that? This requires a lot of spaciousness. So being able to do this, you know, in a safe place as much as possible to, to turn inward, to disengage from the externals for a moment, right? This is taking refuge, a form of taking refuge in our practice. When we look deeply, what we find is, I, I would say, uh, maybe we find, oh, that's just, uh, you know, that's just some, you know, uh, even if it's something really insignificant and in, in, in investigating our anger, we find some selfish concern, right? Even if it's just this minor selfish concern, like when we look deeply, we find something in ourselves that has felt hurt. Whether it's, uh, uh, it makes sense or not. It doesn't matter because what is the appropriate response to pain and suffering? Some measure of kindness, right? Oh, I acknowledge the hurt. We might have a part that comes in and says, oh, poo on this, this hurt, you know, you, you're just uh, being a baby or you're, you know, whatever, Right. Ask that part to step back and just be with the hurt. The underlying feeling that, that leads to strong, the strength of the emotion of anger is oftentimes this pain, as Billion pointed out. So if we can take this stepping back of extending some spaciousness to bring this feeling out in front of us, to develop a relationship to it and with it, to ask, how do I feel towards it? What is appropriate response? What is taking care of the underlying pain, the underlying suffering that leads to the explosion, right? To the feeling of overwhelm, which again, if sustained, may lead to uh, depression or anxiety, right? So if we take this time and we allow ourselves to get to know this very deeply, what we may find is um, our own sense of awakeness, our Buddha nature, our inherent wisdom. What happens to the anger when we feel into our, this quality of, uh, compassion, and wish for well-being. Does it get transformed? Is it the same anger once we've gone through the journey of this investigation? No. I think it is transformed by it. In some sense, the energy of it may be... um, transformed into some other kind of uh, uh, involvement, right? We may feel refreshed, actually, when we, f- when we come into close contact with the energy of anger to what's underneath it, right? It could be exhausting for a while, right? You might cry. You might bawl. You might curl up into a ball, right? It might come in waves, it might take hours, right? It might be a profound grief that you feel, but if you stay with it and you um, illuminate it with your Buddha's eye of wisdom and compassion, it's transformed. And in that transformation, one of the things that comes out of it is this distinction of being able from uh, from acting or speaking from the anger, we might be able to, with this spaciousness, speak for it.
and I think Pat, this is what you were talking about when you were talking about, um, you know, giving voice to it, right? After processing it, after uh, allowing it to be what it is in this kind and gentle manner, may not feel very gentle, um, we might be able to learn something about how to speak for it rather than from it. Sometimes I call this like being able to bracket it, right? So that I can say, Pat, like you did with your friend, you know, this is what has come up for me. This is a feeling that I have, as opposed to just, you know, blasting, right? In this way, we might even be able to befriend it, befriending the, uh, the impetus for the anger, right? If the impetus for our anger is our strong desire for justice, that's worthy to befriend, right? If our impetus for the anger is, um, is not wrapped up in ego, but is rather comes from a desire to be of benefit to the world, right? To take up our bodhisattva vow of living for the benefit of beings, then we can appreciate it and it can be used in the service of action based on love and not on hatred, right? So oftentimes, as I mentioned in the beginning, this, this poison of anger is also uh, translated as just hatred or aggression, right? In this, in this process, we might notice that hatred, if hatred comes up or aggression comes up, very different feeling from anger, right? It's almost like hatred or aggression comes out of an anger that is a maladaptive response to our suffering. If we're able to um, create a spaciousness to hold our anger in and to investigate it deeply, in so doing, developing this relationship with our anger, we get in touch further with our suffering, as opposed to suffering, just suffering more, right? Getting in touch with our suffering and being able to develop that appropriate response to suffering, which, as we know, the appropriate response to suffering is compassion. If asking this question of ourselves, like, how do I feel towards this sticky mess? right? How do I feel towards it? If what comes up is I want to get rid of it, I hate it, right? That's just trying to use mud to wash off mud. So going deeper, again, peeling back the layers. What is this feeling? How do I relate to it? Can I make space for it? You know, can I see it maybe even as a, um, you know, a small child who's having, um, you know, having a, a breakdown, having a tantrum, who feels strongly. I myself uh, will say that as a child, um, I was a, um, let's see, uh, I would throw tantrums like the kind that where you like throw yourself to the floor and like arch your back and uh, wail. Yeah, I, I did that quite a bit. And um, when, I, when I get angry, I think that that's kind of what, you know, my early experience of, you know, this is wrong. You know, I'm not being uh, attended to or I'm not getting my needs met or something like that, right? Uh, growing up, like that would be, uh, that would be how I, um, manifested anger was to fling myself to the floor. And the feeling of it now, when I feel anger, sometimes it feels the same way, right? Like I want to fling myself to the floor. Now with developing a relationship to that feeling, it's like I have an inner child who's throwing a tantrum. And instead of um, doing what some of my caregivers gave, uh, uh, did, which would be, uh, 
you know, if I were throwing a tantrum, that, that was just totally not appropriate, right? <laughs> Go to your room, you're not, you know, that, that's actually probably a good, good uh, uh, response to a child throwing a tantrum maybe. But uh, you're not allowed to feel that way, right? That's the repression, not helpful, right? So now when I have anger, um, I sometimes succumb to it and throw myself to the floor, maybe not literally anymore. Um, but if I can develop my relationship to that small child of anger, right, to have that space where I can actually hold it in my mudra, listen to it, hear it, ask it what it needs, developing my own relationship of actually uh, of care and concern for its well-being. How transformative is that? It's incredibly transformative. Uh, I did say I was going to read this quote from Earthlin, and I wanted to um, maybe end with that, as I'm not sure what time it is, but it looks very late. It's very late. So I will end with this quote. Earthlin says, of herself. For a Dharma teacher, there is an unspoken rule not to feel or express rage. Rage is considered unenlightened. In our Dharma communities, as in our day-to-day -day lives, we most often wear masks of politeness to conceal the rage we carry. Yet to fully feel is to be human. If we can't be honest about the human condition, then we can't hear the cries of the earth or experience liberation. It's true that rage, like fire, to which it is often compared, can be harmful, burning away everything in its path. But rage can also be life-giving, illuminating that which must be exposed before humanity can shift into a greater experience of interrelationship and love. I too feel rage, but rather than lash out from my pain and anguish, I've learned to use my rage to fuel a transformation toward awakening. So how do we use this anger when it arises to, uh, rather than to be mm, dragged around by the anger or unable to develop a relationship to it, how do we, find the source of the anger as a um, as a source of courage actually and compassion for the suffering that brings it about in the first place in so doing developing this relationship knowing understanding that it's possible to work with our anger in such a way, that may give us enough, right? To even have just a, a, a small inkling of the possibility that through engaging with anger, we can transform it, right? Not to get rid of it, but actually to find the wisdom in it, to find the wisdom in our anger, right? If there's wisdom to be found, we are able to find it. Just a little bit of a sense that that's possible opens up a vast amount of space in our practice. So, as I said at the beginning, there's so much more to be said about anger and the practice of um, taking great care uh, of our strong emotions. Um, but that's all I was going to say today. <laughs>